Right, good morning. Welcome to Hope and Anchor Church. It's good to see you here today on the third Sunday of the Lenten season. I look forward to worshiping with you and opening God's Word. We're continuing today in our uh, teaching series called Rock of Ages, which is our walking with the Apostle Peter and, and listening to his words that we have preserved for us, saved for us in his first and second letter in the New Testament. Uh, this is week number 17 of that series, and today's message is called Reek of Mordor. Reek of Mordor. So yeah, get excited. Uh, today's message, I'm going to talk fast, so you're going to need to listen fast. Uh, this is like a suitcase that you overpacked. Uh, so I, even my font is a little smaller than normal because I had to fit it onto, onto the paper. So we're going to cover a lot of ground because Peter uh, presents a teaching that I think we need to hear, but uh, is requires some explanation. So as we jump in today, um, let's start here. Uh, living in the Midwest presents some grim realities. Can you think of any grim realities presented by living in the Midwest? Tornadoes? Yeah, one. Uh, no fresh seafood. Okay, that's good. You know, I didn't even think of these. This is great. Um, living in the Midwest presents some grim realities for those who wish to travel. Uh, it's, it's common among Midwesterners to think, oh, that's a, something I could drive, and it's like a 15, 16, 17, 18 hour drive, and we act like that's okay. But it's what's needed because we're frugal, and we don't want to spend the money on an airline ticket, right? So we'll drive just ridiculous distances, but that's kind of normalized in the Midwest. But anyway, grim realities for those who live in the Midwest who want to travel, especially those who want to travel westward, uh, say, want to travel to Colorado or Utah. One must endure many, many hours of barren, desolate flatness, flatness between here and there in places like Kansas. But let's not forget Oklahoma. Nor shall we forget North Texas. Lots and lots of flatness. On our last trip to Colorado and Utah in the summer of 2022, we drove the southern route through Kansas uh, from Springfield to Wichita, uh, and our destination that first day was Alamosa, Colorado. Now, about three-quarters of the way across Kansas, one finds a town, a town of particular history and fragrance. One, a, a town that you often smell before you see, even if you have the windows up and the air conditioning on. Does anyone know which town I'm talking about? Dodge City. <laughs> Dodge City. As we approached, my kids simultaneously winced. Oh, they winced and their hands flew to their t-shirts as they yanked them northward to cover their noses. And they all cried out in, in acrimony, What? Dear Father, what is that smell? Because we, we thought it'd be fun to not tell them about this beforehand. We wanted that, you know, you, you treasure an experience more when you discover it on your own. You know, you don't need to be told. Anyway, what is that smell? You see, we had happened upon the little town called Dodge City, which is surrounded by massive cattle lots cattle lots, and as a result, many thousands upon thousands of tons of cow poo. I'm sorry, this is PG-13, I know. But mountains of cow, cow manure, cow poo. The atmosphere around Dodge City is rank. Has anyone been to Dodge City? 
You're still showering to get over this experience, right? The atmosphere around Dodge City is rank, perennially fouled by the unnatural, unholy amount of cattle crammed into this one corner of Kansas. May God have mercy upon the soul of the slovenly fool who fails to plan ahead and must stop for gas or a bathroom break within the perimeter of Dodge City. That you would have to stop and step out of your vehicle, availing yourself to this, this rank air. Your hair, your clothes, the inside of your lungs, your psyche will forever be scarred as you are tainted by the reek of Mordor that is Dodge City. Let's pray. <laughs> now, why am I talking about Dodge City? Well, people sometimes have a similar reaction to my children uh, in Dodge City when they encounter certain parts of the Bible. Be it in the Old Testament, be it in, in Paul's letters or in Peter's letters, they suddenly stiffen, uh, face screwing up tightly, uh, reacting to what they find to be a teaching's unpleasant fragrance. Would you believe that there are parts in the Bible that people just don't like? They don't like the teaching. It doesn't fit their preferences or their worldview. And so they want to uh, remove that part or ignore that part or act if that part isn't there or it isn't to be uh, paid attention to. We find parts that we just don't like. And so we react to those teachings like my kids reacted to Dodge City. Thus, they step on the gas so they can get out of Dodge. You ever heard that saying? Let's get out of Dodge. They're talking about Dodge City. You get to Dodge City and you're like, step on the gas. Let's get out of Dodge. Yeah, that's where it comes from. What happens is we come across parts of the Bible we don't like that make us uncomfortable and instead of pressing in, instead of looking deeper, instead of asking good questions about context and about culture, uh, we sometimes throw it aside and find it easier just to call the author hateful or misogynistic. We just don't do the work and instead we recoil and we operate on assumptions. With the Bible, we just can't seem to get around ourselves sometimes. Sometimes we just can't get out of the way of what God wants to teach us through His Word, that which God has used to teach His followers, the followers of Jesus throughout Christian history. We just can't seem to get around ourselves when it comes to the Bible, and we find ourselves standing in judgment over Scripture rather than sitting under its teaching and living accordingly. We like to be the referee over God. We end up shaping and editing Scripture based on our preferences and our sensibilities instead of allowing Scripture to shape us and inform us, inform, shape and inform our faith and our worldview. As a student of Scripture, you must do the work of learning how to study you must develop the skill of learning to listen closely so that we can bring that first century world into which the scripture was first written into our 21st century world. There are timeless truths in scripture that we as disciples, as followers of Jesus, must have the skill set that allows us to translate those unchanging truths into our world 
and into our time. As the New Bible Commentary states, our task, to, our task today is to interpret the principles laid down in Scripture for the times in which we live, which is really the task of any believer at any time, right? Because the, the ancient Near East in the first century is much different than pick a place on the globe. Why? It could be even in that same place, and times have changed because it's a different time altogether. We must look at the historical context. We must seek to understand the world into which these words were first written. We glean those God-given principles, those God-breathed principles, and we grapple then with the truth we find there because we believe that this is true. And truly true truth is unchanging. It is what God has built into His created order. And we have to then how, figure out how to live in that truth in the day we've been given, in the time in which we live. To stop at a surface uh, or culturally snobbish reading of Scripture and reject it out of hand is to miss it, to miss out. It's to miss out at best, and it's to, to stray into grave error at worst. Okay, at best, you just come away missing out on something that God wants us to know. At worst, we start believing something that is heresy or is sin, is grave error. So, all that being said, today we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. And here we have the uh, Apostle Peter giving instructions to wives and husbands regarding godly living. Instruction to wives and husbands regarding godly living. From the very first sentence, some may feel that impulse to run for the exits. Because he doesn't waste any time saying things that just kind of like fly into our face like a dirty mop. You know, like, oh, oh no. No, that's not culturally appropriate for us to hear. We can't accept that because we don't like the sound of it. Well, I want to encourage you, though. Hang in there. Hang in there. Let's press in. Let's listen closely. I really believe there is something beneficial and encouraging to be found in this very passage. So let's jump right into it. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through seven. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. See what I mean? <laughs> it's like, er, record scratches to a stop. Right? Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. Then they will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They trusted God and they accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Verse 7. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you, you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her, treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, good passage, a little fraught, right? You can see where there's a little couple angular parts, a little corners that you might get hung up on there, right? 
It's one of those things we don't like to hear. We live in a pretty egalitarian age where everything's supposed to be equal and the same. But here Peter says, hey, there's differences here that matter and must be honored. Perhaps it's best if we take this passage in sections as opposed to verse by verse uh, in order to keep us from getting too bogged down in the details. So let's look verse, first at verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. So, first, we notice Peter is pointing us to what was said before. Because you remember, what's the first words there? In the same way. That's like saying, therefore, or because of this. He, he starts pointing us to what he has said before. The Greek word that Peter uses here, and I try not to do this very often, but the Greek word is important here that he uses. It's the Greek word for submission, hupotasso. Hupotasso is used uh, in directing people to submit first to governmental authority. Remember we talked about that, like submit to the authorities God places over you, even if you don't like them or you didn't vote for them? <laughs> submit. Submit to their authority. Hupotasso. Uh, in verses 13 and 14 is what I'm talking about. You can go back over there, like, for the Lord's sake, respect all human authority. You can read that on your own. For chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. So, hupotasso, submission. Hupotasso is also used in 2.18 regarding slaves submitting to masters. The same word is used here. We can begrudgingly accept submitting to government authority, but what is this? Slaves must submit to masters with all respect? No way. It's like Peter's like trying to nudge us out the door. He's like, respect the government officials. We're like, pew. Okay, fine. Slaves, respect your masters. I'm out of here. You know, it's like, oh, no, no. Before you go, wives, submit to your husbands. <laughs> it's like, I hate all of you. <laughs> I'm out of here. Um, here. But hang in there. Slavery, we must understand, was a very common practice. It was sadly a common practice in the first century world. And it was into this world that the gospel of Jesus Christ was invading. It was breaking into this uh, dysfunctional world that had unfortunately existed. But here's the thing. By some estimates, about a third of the population would have been considered slaves. Did you realize this? It was almost like a caste system existed. If you didn't have fortune, you didn't have land, you didn't own property, the occupational opportunity afforded you would have been filed under slave. You would sell yourself into servitude of someone else that did have land, did have riches, and you would have been considered a slave. To some degree, you didn't get to decide what you did each day because you were in servitude to somebody else. About a third of the population was considered slaves, working in some form of servitude to another because it was often the only viably option, viable option for the poor. Okay, we can sit on our, on our 21st century Western high horse and think, like, that's unfair. That's unjust. No one should be slaves. Well, in reality, at that time, your choice was be a slave and, and have food, have money to live on, have a means for survival, or have your principles and just die. Die of starvation. I mean, it was not a philosophical or theoretical choice. It was a reality in which they lived and they had to just do this thing because of poverty. 
And it was oftentimes the only viable option. So just say that and then say also be careful about reverse projecting uh, the chattel slavery that we're most familiar with from the American South back onto the bi biblical world because it's not the same thing. It was unpleasant, it was terrible, and it was uh, dehumanizing for sure, but not the same. It wasn't apples to apples with American Southern chattel slavery. Does that make sense? Okay, you were, you were not the property. You were not viewed as non-human by your master in the first century world, like slaves were in the American South uh, during the uh, 17th or 19th century. Okay, or 18th and 19th century, sorry. Oh, anyway, so be careful about reverse projection. Listen carefully to what Peter is saying here. He's saying to us, he's saying to slaves, he's saying to wives, he's saying to husbands, follow Jesus' example. Whatever your station in life, whatever your situation in life, yours as a follower of Jesus is to follow his example at all costs. Follow Jesus' example. Whatever your status or station, fidelity to Jesus dictates following His example in submission, in submitting, doing good, even when it means suffering. Okay, we think, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'll, I'll follow His example. Well, His example leads us to suffering. And that's when it becomes difficult. That's when it becomes hard. A very challenging decision to say, I will suffer pain for the cause of Christ in this situation that I really do not like, this situation that offends me, that degrades me, I will still follow after Jesus. Did slaves suffer in the first century? Most definitely. But in that very situation, did they have the opportunity to bear witness to Christ and to proclaim the gospel? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, through their words and their deeds, through their humble, Christ-fearing submission. Christ-honoring submission. Likewise, wives willingly accept, willingly accept their husband's authority, even if the husband's uh, unrepentant. Even if the husband is unrepentant, even if the husband refuses to obey the good news, obey that truth which Jesus brought to us, this, this indicates, the way that Peter talks here, the, the words he uses, indicates indirectly a scenario where both the husband and wife had been unbelievers when they were married because elsewhere Christians are prohibited from marrying unbelievers. Okay, so if you look at 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 the Apostle Paul says, Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? So among the early believers, they knew that it was not God's will or God's plan for someone who said they belonged to Jesus to go out and marry uh, someone who did not follow Jesus. So this scenario that Peter's indicating or talking about here means that both the husband and wife had been unbelievers. So ostensibly, the women that Peter has in mind have at a later time come to faith in Jesus. They have come to the Christian faith, yet some of their husbands had not. Thus, these believing wives, their godly witness to the gospel by their pure and reverent lifestyles, their daily choices could likely win their husbands over to faith in Jesus. 
So these wives, through choosing to humbly submit to their husband's authority, they're actually honoring Jesus and they're gospeling their husband. They're sharing the good news to their daily example in hopes that their husband too will come under the lordship of Jesus Christ as well. Their winsome way of submitting willfully, willingly, would become a redemptive influence in their husband's life. Both for those husbands who did believe already and those who did not yet believe. Theirs was to bear witness faithfully to them. So another point I'd like to make while we're on the topic of women. Uh, that's a good transition, right? Speaking of women, uh, another point I'd like to make is that in the Roman world, um, women were of the same social status as slaves. I mean, we, we kind of look back on this like pre-Christian like heyday of Greco-Roman world, like we need to get back to that and our sexual ethic and everything else. Like seriously, <laughs> read about it. You were property women. You had no say over how your body was used by a man. You had no say over how your body was used by any man. You were on the same social strata as slaves. A woman standing in that society was low. This is why becoming married was so important because a woman was completely reliant on um, their husbands or their fathers for their livelihoods and their protection. It was very rare for a woman to be able to make it on her own without the protection of her father or her husband. This is often why a, a young woman whose husband died wasn't considered a widow. Why? Because she could go back home to live with her father or she could be remarried to another man, right? But an older woman whose husband died, her father was dead, and she was beyond childbearing years, so she probably wasn't going to get married again. That's what was considered a widow in biblical terminology. Just That's free right there. Uh, the Christian community, however, was radical. Socially radical. The Christian community was radical in that it honored all people based on their common faith in Jesus, the one who had redeemed each of us. As Paul says, here there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. You are all one through faith in Jesus Christ. We hear this as like, yeah, put that on a magnet on my refrigerator. I love it. Back in the first century, they're like, what did you just say? Oh, no, 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 no. We are very different. Especially if you were a male that had uh, money. You had status. You didn't accept that there were women or there were slaves that were equal to you. If you were a Jew, you didn't think the Greeks were. The Greeks certainly didn't think the Jews were. We are all one. We are all equal in Christ. This was a radical message. The simple fact that Peter is directly addressing women. Step back a little bit. Peter is directly addressing women here. And this is remarkable. In him directly saying, Wives whom I'm making eye contact with and talking directly into your ear holes. <laughs> Wives, listen to me. In that very act, he is saying, you have worth, you have equal standing, you have a place in this fellowship. Remarkable. Notice here, it's important to notice, Peter is not telling the husbands to be sure and let their wives know when, they get, when the husbands get back home. We almost expect Peter to say, hey, husbands, I got news for your wife. Tell her I said, <laughs> submit. He's saying, women, wives, hear me when I say this. Slaves, hear me when I say this. They are in the room. 
They are sitting there in the place and in the posture of a disciple of Jesus Christ, <laughs> receiving this message. Reading this passage with first century eyes and hearing it with first century ears, it would startle us to find Peter, who, like Paul, is addressing both slaves and women in the same audience with the men. The Vine's expository Bible notes uh, explains it this way regarding wives' submission to their husband. Submission carries the idea of respect and honor and does not imply an inequality among people. No thought of submission implying a doormat treatment of husbands toward their wives in this biblical context. If you're reading this, husband, and you're thinking that you can keep your wife under your thumb because the Bible said so, you're reading the Bible wrong. You are in sin if you're degrading and dehumanizing your wife because they have worth, value, and equal standing in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And understand, too, what, is, what word does Peter use here? He says, wives, submit to your husbands. He does not say, women, submit to men. Important difference, maybe? Sometimes we conflate that we conflate wives submit to your husbands to mean women submit to men, and it's not the same. There's a voluntary glad giving of a wife saying, I will, out of love for Jesus Christ, submit to you even, uh, even when I don't want to. I will respect you even when you're unrespectable because of Jesus. It's a choice. It's an empowered choice you make uh, as a wife in a covenant union with your husband under the lordship of Jesus. Each person in that community of faith in Christ, man, woman, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, is welcomed, is empowered. They each have a voice, and we all have a choice to make. Makes you feel a little better, right? I mean, I'm not a woman. Never been one. Don't plan to be one. And I, but I imagine that that's a refreshing word to hear, because I don't know what it's been like growing up in the church as a woman. But I think sometimes there's a pretty slanted message that comes your way of less than, of second class. But if we could like time travel, like back to the first century, I think you'd sit in that room, you'd stand in that room and be like, this place is off the chain. This is amazing. Who would have ever thought of this? The women, the men, the slaves, the free, the Jews, the Greek, we're all here because of Jesus. Praise Jesus. So let's look at verses 3 through 6. Don't be concerned with the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentile, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They trusted God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham, and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. I won't spend a ton of time here, but essentially it comes down to who are we trying to impress? Who are we trying to impress and uh, how are we seeking to be attractive in the world? As you know, our culture is once again soaked to the bone in the worship of Aphrodite, as N.T. Wright says. Our culture is once again soaked to the bone in the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. We place a high value on sexual stimulation of others, often strangers. 
We just want everyone to think we're sexy. And it's so weird. This private treasure we carry is just held out for everyone to oogle. Self-worth, especially for women, is largely bound up in physical appearance and how we look, our sex appeal. There's very little concern for who you are as a real person, as a person. Thus, even in the first century, um, in the first century, women were dressing provocatively. It was an expectation that you dressed provocatively. You sold sex when you went out in public. You dressed provocatively with towering hairstyles that were bedazzled with glittering jewelry and gold leaf. There was pressure then, as now, to gain attention by how you dressed. Not by the content of your character, not by the richness of who you were as a person, your thoughts, your contributions, your, your art, your creativity. It was just your body. There was pressure then as now to gain attention by how you dress, to impress and attract others by your sexual energy and erotic titillation. I've never said that phrase before in a sermon. And I probably won't ever again. But it's true. Here again, I'm not a woman, but I, I can't imagine the pressure you feel. You know, a guy looks in the mirror and is like, do I have anything on my face? You know, is my fly zip, you know, is my, are my pants zipped? That's pretty much the checklist, right? It's like, do I have something on my face and is my, are my pants on and zipped, right? But I can't imagine the pressure a woman feels going out into such a sexually charged world. It's got to be kind of crushing. I don't know. You could maybe fill me in. Maybe, maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe I'm projecting something that's completely false. But I think we live in a world that makes it really difficult for a woman to resist the pressure to make herself a commodity, a sexual commodity to the watching world. This trap has been laid from long ago as men started seeing women as sexual playthings, as only recipients of male, male sexual urges and proclivities. But this must not be so in the church. This was another way in which the early church was so remarkably different. That a woman in the church was protected, was cared for, was welcomed in, and was given status, standing, a voice. It must not be in the church as it is on the streets or as it is in the world. Women are to be regarded and esteemed as sisters in Christ who are increasingly adorned in righteousness, understanding that, as Vines says, the most magnificent beauty imaginable is a groomed spirit, a decorated heart and soul, what Peter calls the hidden person of the heart. You see, in you, there, there's a hidden person of the heart at the very center of who you are. And that is what Peter is saying. Make that as beautiful as you can. That's what Christ came to make beautiful, the, the hidden person of the heart. That's a, the most beautiful part of you. And when that shines through, man, people are blessed. People are drawn to you for the right reasons. As an image bearer, as a child of God, you have incredible, unfading beauty within that is so precious to the one who made you. I love this. Look at that. Verse 4, I think it is. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Look at that. Which is so precious 
to God. I guarantee this. When God looks at you, He's like, that is so precious. He's not looking at your eyeliner. He's not looking at your Lee press-on nails. He's looking at you. He's looking at your heart, that precious heart that He looks at. He's like, that's my kid. I love this. You're precious. You are precious to God, the one who made you. How affirming is that? Man, for the first time ever, I think, I wish I was a woman so I could hear this as a woman. I mean, <laughs> this is weird. Don't, don't edit that into its own thing. But is that affirming? In Christ, there is a gentle, quiet spirit within you whose beauty surpasses anything that you could put on or take off. Inside of you is that of, of such surpassing beauty and worth that nothing else could compare. Nothing you could put on, nothing you could strip off. Nothing is more beautiful and precious to God than who you are, the hidden person of your heart. Offering that beauty to your husbands, offering that beauty to the community of believers, the people in your life, is of far greater worth than investing over and over again, being on the hamster wheel of outward attractiveness. Because it's never enough. Okay, one last. Let's look at verse 7. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Now, this is not scientific, but as any man here knows who's ever tried to arm wrestle a woman, uh, most of the time the guy wins. Uh, why? Most of the time... Why does the guy win when he decides somehow ends up awkwardly arm wrestling a, a woman? They're stronger. They have more muscle development. They have longer uh, bones, which creates leverage advantage, things like that. So most of the time, I have to say most of the time, because I was at a coffee shop here in town the other day, and I told the guy I was meeting with, I was like, see that waitress or barista? I think she could beat us both up. <laughs> she was like a, one of those CrossFit types, had like shoulder and arm development, that was intimidating. I mean, it's like the kind I want. I mean, I would love to have her arms and shoulder development, which I do not, strangely enough. Um, it's like, she's got guns. Look at those things. So I think in a, in a, in a world where I somehow ended up arm wrestling her, <laughs> I think she would win. So I had to say most of the time, because there are women out there that could just spank you in a arm wrestling contest. Just mark my words. Anyway, most of the time men win because they're physically larger and stronger. Their musculature and leverage advantage makes it an unfair contest. This reality is what Peter likely has in mind when he describes a woman as the weaker sex who deserves what? Ridicule? No, care. Protection. Women, if they are the weaker sex, our responsibility is to care for them, to protect them. As the Vines Expository Bible Notes explains, this doesn't mean women are weaker either in spirit, soul strength, or resolve. Nonetheless, she is never to be degraded as a mere plaything or a house servant. One time, I was at a Grant and Chestnut Expressway traveling south. Now, I saw a couple walking along, uh, and they were carrying all their stuff with them. So I think they were living in some difficult circumstances. But they were walking along, uh, having a very heated argument on the sidewalk on the other side of that barrier. Suddenly, 
the man stopped. He's like shaking his finger in her face, yelling at her. He stops. He turns toward her. He grabs her forearms and he headbutts her right in the face. I mean, in the face. And she collapsed to the ground. Um, I was driving southbound, so I'm on the other side of the road in traffic, so, so I, I, I had to fight this very strong urge to stop my car right in the middle of the road to cross over and to open up a can of whoop rear <laughs> on this belligerent fellow. Why? I don't know them. I don't know what they're arguing about. I don't know the merits of, his, of their argument. But something in me is like, oh. I must go break him. Something in me was triggered. Seeing anyone headbutt someone else would bother me, but it bothered me far worse. Why? Because he headbutted a woman. Who does that? Who does that? Who's that insecure? Who's that small of a man that feels like he, it's all right for him to headbutt a woman? Yikes. You may be far more woke, enlightened than I am, but, and you may not have felt what I felt, you may not have seen what I saw, a man headbutting a woman in the face. Maybe you just saw two gender-free humans walking and bless you, bless you. But I didn't see it that way. Something in me instinctively knew this. This woman, whoever she was, she deserved to be shown kindness, she deserved to be shown respect and gentleness. She deserved to be protected. And that's the urge that rose inside of me to park my car, to run across the road and just beat the tar out of this guy. You don't do this to people, and you especially don't do it to women. That's just how I was raised. I think I was raised like the rest of the humans in history and the rest of the world, but you don't do this to people, and you especially men don't do this to women. Husbands must care for their wives. There are spiritual implications in how we treat them. Our relationship with God is either helped or hindered. C contemplate that this week. Treat your wife well and with respect so that your prayers are not hindered. I mean, I think that's the lid on something with, that's really deep and a lot of contents there. Treat your wife with respect honor her so that your prayers, your relationship with God, your interaction with the one who saved you is not jacked up, not hindered, not forestalled because of your hard heart and your sinful behavior. If we fail to care for and respect our wives as an equal partner in God's gift of new life in Jesus, we are obstructing our prayers, we are short-circuiting our vitality, so check yourself. Now, Peter wraps up this message in verses 8 through 9 when he says, All of you be of one mind. So let's finish here. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and He will bless you for it. For the Scriptures say, If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. 
The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. So husbands and wives, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, let's begin here and let's end here. Sympathize with each other. Love each other. Be tender-hearted with each other and have a humble attitude. Understand what Jesus has done for us and let that define how we live with each other for God's glory and for the good of those we love. Let's pray. Father, this is a lot to absorb, to process, and to assimilate into our lives, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us do so because it is our calling. It's our calling to be of one mind, to be humble, to honor, and to submit to others out of respect for you. Because of Jesus, whether we are a citizen, a slave, a husband, a wife, ours is to submit in humility and in graciousness to others because we love you and because we're obedient to you. So God, I pray that you'd help us do that. Lord, we've covered a lot of ground today, said some things that don't fit well into our culture, our prevailing host culture. But maybe this is just one of those ways that we, like our brothers and sisters in the first century, are called to be a peculiar people. A people who believe things that seem strange. We live in a certain way that seems pretty strange. But God, I pray that we would rest in the fact that you have given us a well-ordered way to live that leads to life. That leads to deeper communion with you and deeper communion with each other. So God, I pray for my friends who, who are here who are married, who are both seeking to honor Jesus and how they live. I pray for the husbands that they would uh, honor and respect their wives, that in the spirit of mutual submission, they would seek to be like Christ in that home, loving, giving, serving, and when necessary, suffering. I pray for wives that they would take this hard teaching that's made so much harder in our world to submit to their husbands, to respect them, even when they're hard to respect. I pray that they'd see the quiet person of the heart, that true person for which Christ died, that God finds so precious. I pray that they would keep their attention focused on who they have been made to be and what they can offer to the world, the goodness, the true beauty, and the peace that they can bring. I pray that they'd be free from the uh, self-image, all the demands of a sexually charged culture, that they wouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that they're a sexual commodity to be used by, by men and by strangers. Lord, may we see our worth in you. May we strive to be beautiful uh, in your sight. Lord, thank you for Peter, the, 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 the faithfulness he showed in writing this letter and sharing these kind of things that are so timeless. God, I pray that we'd be able to translate them faithfully into our life, into our marriages, into our relationships today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, we're going to worship uh, one more song, uh, but let's take a minute or two just to sit with the Lord. I know we covered a lot of ground, we talked about a lot of things, but just maybe hold these out before the Lord. Maybe you need to open to that 1 Peter chapter 3 passage, just read through it a couple times and say, Speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Because we all have opportunity today, this week, in the year ahead, to live more faithfully in the way that Jesus uh, provided for us. Live more faithfully in the way uh, He's invited us to follow Him. 
So make the most of this opportunity.